This is his word. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And the man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping, praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Happy New Year. Uh, I wonder who you followed into 2021. Uh, representative, idol, angel, or the presence. And I pray that Jesus was how you entered this year. Amen? Amen. Um, before we pray and before we start, uh, I just wanted to tell you, 2021, uh, the topic that we're going to be talking about is ecclesiology all throughout this year. And so 2021, all of it is devoted to understanding what the church is and how it functions together as a church. Uh, <clears throat> now, before you get disappointed, like, uh, oh, this whole year is going to be about church, I really need to tell you something important that connects church to your life. So biblical anthropology tells you who you are in God. You are the image of God. And the church, ecclesiology, is a gathering of people who believe in Jesus. Where do they overlap is all of you are the church. Amen? Individually, you are the church. Your family is a church. Your small group is a church. And us as a local church is the church. And so if we understand how to do church life, how to proceed with the church um, and the, the rhythm of faith and good work and the rhythm of, of, of gathering and scattering, When we understand that, it has massive implications to who we are because we are the church. You are the church individually. God's presence lives in you. And we are the church collectively. God is in our midst. And so why is this so practical for us this whole year? When we learn how to do church, we learn how to live our life and learn how to live our family life and also learn how to interact with society. So this year, we pray that as you understand the theology of the church, many great things would happen. Now, each sermon series this year is targeting something that has implications for TUI and the English congregation and KCPC. Now, what are these implications? I want three goals to be recognized at the end of this year. Number one, to help you interact and understand uh, your biblical role within your family and your society. That's the first goal, to help you interact with your family and society biblically. Number two, to get you involved in small groups, soons, soon-centered ministry and soon-centered relationships. That's what we want to form out of this year. And finally, we want to reduce the percentage of people who are bystanders in worship. People who come here, watch, and have 30 minutes of a shot of Christianity shot into them and then live the rest of their life without anything to do with Scripture. 
And so as we understand how to live church every day, I pray that you would no longer be bystanders, but you would be people actively engaged in the life of the church on a daily basis. Amen? We aren't here to be on the sidelines to watch what's happening here. We are meant to participate. And I pray that this would be one of the goals that we conclude with at the end of this year. With that said, um, let's pray. Let's bow our heads and offer up this worship service to God. Lord, uh, we want to be your people. Uh, scripture says you are the head of the church, and we want to be faithful to Jesus. We want to be united with him, married to him, and faithful to him, loyal to him at all things that we do. So, Father, I pray that as we restructure our understanding of the church, restructure our understanding of our families and ourselves throughout this year, I pray that there would be solid gospel replacements for what we idolize to form our identities. Lord, I especially pray for all the people uh, that are figuring out how to live 2021, that they would receive uh, all of these year's sermons, not just as a quick word of God to inspire them, but to transform their daily thoughts and actions so that we would be pleasing unto you as a people and we'd be pleasing unto you as a living sacrifice. And so, Lord, would you cause that transformation, for we know that he who started a good work within us will complete it until the day you come. So holding on to that promise, we look forward to what you will do in our lives through the word. Father, speak to us. Holy Spirit, enact what you have planted in our hearts so that we may be changed as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. January will be the subject of, call, call, be, will be called the paradox of the church. The paradox of the church. Uh, what am I talking about as I talk about the paradox of the church? I'm reading from Center Church by Tim Keller. I'm listening to sermons by David Wilkerson and also my previous mentor in Korea. He preached a series called the paradox of the church. Now this has a different direction, but the impulse is the same. Secular organizations thrive on five things. And so January, we'll be talking about everything that a secular organization thrives upon, but when, it imp when it's implanted into the church, it causes the church to decay from the inside out. And these are the five things. Number one, the paradox of money, which is today's sermon, the paradox of wealth. Number two, structure, the paradox of structure, the paradox of tradition, the paradox of charisma, and the paradox of professionalism. These are five things that organizations in the world thrive upon. And as we have new elders and new deacons every year and new leaders, what they subconsciously do is they, they look at the best practices in their organization and they draw it into church practice, thinking that more money will drive the church better, that more structure will help the church thrive. And I'm not saying that these are unhelpful. Uh, I mean, common sense comes from the Lord, amen? A common sense and good wisdom and organizational wisdom comes from the Lord. But here's the thing. If it replaces something that is crucial to the spiritual life of the church, then it is an idol. And what we're trying to do this year is to restructure our understanding of how the church functions. What is the engine of the church? And there are five things that these things are often replacing. Money replaces something. Tradition and structure replace something. Charisma replaces something. And professionalism replaces a gospel element that we have to identify and replace. 
And so with that in mind, this is an operation. This is a surgery. This is a, a, a medical intervention that we're trying to understand how we live church life and what to replace it with. Now, in particular, uh, today's sermon, I mean, if we look at a lot of our church members, uh, 25 years at KCPC, 30 years at KCPC, and yet a lot of them are still drinking milk and still acting out of spiritual youthfulness instead of maturity. And why that happens is it's often because you rely upon, in some way or form, money and structure and charisma and professionalism and structure. And so with all this in mind, the purpose of today's sermon is this. We want to look at the paradox of wealth within the church and see what it's supposed to be replaced by. All of us know the famous story of Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas was um, having a visit with Pope Innocent II. Pope Innocent II uh, uh, was really known for his conglomeration of church powers. And the church really became like an empire during his time. And so he was counting a, a huge amount of offerings in the bin. So as he was counting, he uh, was referring to today's text. And Pope, uh, Pope Innocent II kind of said, I, I don't know if it was in a haughty way, but he said so. I don't think it's no longer possible to say that the church doesn't have silver or gold. It's no longer possible for the church to say that the church uh, doesn't have silver and gold. And I guess there was a little bit of pride in saying this. And Thomas Aquinas replied, Yes, Holy Father, yes, that is true. But at the same time, it's also true that we can no longer say, in the name of Jesus, rise up and stand. We're losing something because of the accumulation of wealth. And what are we losing? It is the power of the name of Jesus. It's replacing that. So what we're trying to do in today's sermon is to replace our reliance upon wealth and material structure and replacing that with the power of the name of Jesus. Amen? That holds not just for the church, but for your families. Your families will not run on money. It will not be happy because of money. Your life is not happy because of money. It must be replaced by the name of Jesus if you are the church individually and the church as a family. And so hoping to see this happen, let's dive in. Verse 3, seeing Peter, this crippled person, this man, sees Peter and John going into the temple and he is asking for alms. He's asking for money, okay? Now, here was this beggar and it says this beggar was lame from birth. He was sitting at the gate of the temple called Gate Beautiful. And when this incident was happening, he was 40 years old. So birth to 40 years old, that's 40 years of reliance upon the help of other people to not die out of starvation and to be cared for. Now, maybe this disease was genetic. I mean, the King James Bible translates this verse. It says this way, he was lame from his mother's womb. He was lame from his mother's womb. Now, what's really ironic is that because he was lame, he was unable to enter the temple. That's why he's sitting in front of the temple. The temple didn't allow people who were social outcasts and people who weren't purified and people who were lame. And so he was always right outside the temple needing a relationship with God, but ultimately asking for money all the time. And that was ironic. He needed the presence of God, the power of God to heal him, but he was right outside What does this mean for us? This sounds familiar because this is summarized as a genetic disease that shuts off even the possibility of knowing who God is. Sound familiar? It's sin. 
is sin, a genetic ingrained disease that cuts us off from the presence of God, which we most need, and causes us to beg outside his presence for the benefits of God, of having God in your life and not his presence. And so many of us who treat God like a genie in the lamp seek his benefits and not, according to last week's sermon, his presence. But we need his presence. Now, in Psalm 51, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in impurity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So we're seeing that sin is a basic component of the fallen person. And so just like this confession, we can only say that we too have sin as part of our lives ingrained into our DNA that cuts us off from a relationship with God. There are a lot of people who look at a poor person and will say, does that person need money or does that person need the gospel? And that influences how we do our homeless ministry, for example. But all of this comes from, once again, an understanding of biblical anthropology. Who are you? Who are people outside of God? If you see people as people who are cut off, who are still the image of God, but who need God to be complete, then you will offer to any person that you meet the name of Jesus Christ. You will offer the gospel. But if you see people, uh, anthropologically, if you see people as morally neutral people who just need a little bit of help, who just need a, a bit of more encouragement, that what you will be offering is something apart from the name of Jesus, because you'll see that they don't need salvation, or they don't need power, or they don't need life, but you, you'll think that they need help and assistance and care. So biblical anthropology, what you think about people determines how you reach out to people. This is really important for the life of the church. How will we reach out to Centerville? What are we offering to our communities? If we see them as they're just getting by a tough season, we just need to be there for them, that's all we can do. But if we see that they need the name of Jesus Christ for salvation because they are images of God, only who, who can be completed in God himself, then our mission strategy takes a different form, right? Now, I, I once saw a, a documentary. And in this documentary, um, there was a baby monkey. And this monkey had lost its mother to hunters in Africa. And so uh, this, uh, this group of people, um, a humanitarian group, picked up this monkey and raised it as their own. And what was so traumatic about this was that he lost his parents. And so what they did was they put a doll next to him. And every night, the, ba the baby monkey would hold this doll's hand, thinking that it was his mother, and sleep and fall asleep according to that. So what the baby actually needed was an actual mother figure. And what he had was a surrogate mother figure in a lifeless doll. And a lot of times I realize how sad that is because it applies to us. We have the trauma of being stripped away from people, from, stripped away from God. And because we're cut off from him, we feel that there's a, a hole inside of us that needs to be filled by something, and yet we have surrogate mothers, surrogate father figures that take the place of God but not act as God himself. Why is money such a problem? Why is money such a neutral thing in and of itself, but a problem for sinful people? It's because we see that as a way to cope with our needs, cope with our fallenness. And it gives us the impression that, hey, life can be endurable without God. You see, every problem in life is configured for Christians, especially for Christians, in a way that makes you focus on your need for God. 
Why, is, why does scripture call the love of money the root of all evils? It's because it makes you contemplate a life that is independent from God, right? In other words, the greatest evil in the world is sustained independence from God. Sustained independence from God is the root of all evil. And money is often used in a way that sustains your independence, right? I had a friend, um, a deacon in, in my previous church, and he would always argue that pastors need to stay poor because when they're poor, they call out to God a lot. And I was always angry with that because I'm a pastor. But at the same time, I recognize the value of that statement. If you're crying out to God for your next meal, God is your provider. But how many times have you no need for God in the essential things and so he becomes your friend? your accessory, your ego booster. Because we don't rely upon him for the most fundamental things of our identity. And that's what money does. It gives you the idea that you can sustain life without receiving life from God himself. Money is the root of all evil because of that reason. Not because it is evil in and of itself, but the way that we rely upon it because it replaces something, reliance upon God. May your reliance upon money be replaced with a deep reliance upon God. Amen? Please receive that blessing. Money promotes this. And practically, money acts like an anesthetic, an anesthetic to numb our deeper problems and our hurts and our issues. Money acts in that way. And so I want to ask you a question. What deeper spiritual needs are we trying to cover with material wealth? That is the paradox of wealth, that organizations and people and families find a way to cause their problems to go away by material wealth. And I want to ask you, how is your family doing this? Like, what issues are you not addressing because you have enough? Security, for example? Replacing intimacy with money? Replacing a deeper desire for being known by God with money. Wealth isn't a, a neutral thing by itself. It's reinterpreted by our mind, by our needs. Our needs tell us what we should think of money. And I tell you, you are replacing something that only God can give to you with money. And so have that active introspection in your mind right now. You must know what you're replacing Verse 4. And then Peter, this is what he does. So he looks at this image of God who's crippled outside the temple and he's looking at his own needs and desires that he knows and he needs money. And he says to this person, this is what he says, look at us. Look at us. And so he is basically diverting his self-focused attention, need-driven attention to himself to look at gospel carriers. Basically, he's saying, look at us. Like, snap out of it right now. Like, get out of your needs. Get out of what you came to church here for right now. There is a deeper need that you don't know about, and only I can offer that if God speaks through me. And that's the same thing. I don't know why you came to church. Because of your devotion, because of your training, or because of a, a real spiritual need. But cast that aside for night, right now and look at me. Like, think about why you're here. And then, let me tell you something. Only God can give you what you really need. 
You don't need, in this case, silver and gold. You don't need that promotion. You don't need more job security. You don't need all these things that we hope to find as benefits of God. And so Paul, I mean Peter and John tell us, look at me. Shift your eyes and your gaze away from your self-needs and look at God. And you'll find something there that totally satisfies you. Shift your eyes away. It requires intentionality. A lot of us don't prepare for Sunday. Uh, you know, I've been in worship services where the praise team leader dances and jumps up and down, but no one in the congregation follows. They don't have the capacity to be joyful. A lot of people, we mourn together in worship. We, we, you know, how, how long has it been since you came to a worship service and you clutched at your chest, repenting of sin in your life? We don't have the capacity to be sorrowful anymore because we've lost the capacity to feel anything because how we spend our Saturdays, right? We don't prepare for it. And so shifting your eyes to God, look at us. That applies starting from Saturday. A lot of young adults, if you think that Saturday night is meant to be enjoyed for yourself and you indulge in games and pornography, you don't have the emotional capacity to resonate with anything the Word of God pours out at you. So if you haven't been changed by the word of God on Sundays, if the worship service doesn't bring tears to your eyes, then there is a numbing of our heart that has started on Saturday. This word applies to you. Look at him. Look. Shift your gaze. And as Peter directed his gaze at him, it says this. You need to hear the words, look here. Fix your attention not on gold and not on silver. This is what Peter and John say. I have no silver I have no gold. I don't have what you think you need, but I have what you actually need. What I do have, I give to you. What is it? In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The most fundamental solution to this person's issues, his lameness was cured. Not the economic dependence that came from his lameness. It was the root issue that he cured right then and right there by the power of the name of Jesus. By the power of the name. Today's text is actually silent on the use of money. I wish this sermon could be called uh, Three Things to Do with Your Money as a Christian. But the thing is, it's silent about it. I can't interpret out of silence. I can't give you tips about how to use money based off of scriptural silence. And yet, here is something though. I see the intentionality and the purpose and the direction of the apostles. What they're doing is they use anything and everything to shift your eyes from yourself to Jesus. And that's how we should use our money, to shift one person's gaze from themselves to Jesus. That's how you use money. For example, like how do you do this? Money is extremely useful. Money, is, is, it should be used for so many good things in our church. Uh, member care should be used for outreach, inreach, should be used for missions. There's so many should, should, shoulds that that's why the topic of a lot of sessions is how do we use this money in a way that honors God? And therein is the beautiful principle. It's not how that money is actually used. It's the process of relying upon the name of Jesus to know the wisdom to use that money, Right? And so when the leadership comes up with a budget, they are on their knees praying, Lord Jesus, we have so many formulas and structures of how to use money, but we need your presence to tell us how to use this money. Where is your heart right now? 
What if we miss where your heart is? Right? And so what money can do is draw people's attention to Jesus, reliant upon him. The more money you have, the more thirst. Amen? The more money you have, the more dependence. Because every penny you use, you'll be held accountable for. And it must be used in a way that causes people to look at Christ. And so anyone who has more than enough, use it in a way that causes yourself and people around you to look at Jesus. Amen? I, I need you to be creative about this. I can't give you, I don't know your lives. I don't know your Amazon purchase history. And so I have to tell you to be creative. How can you cause people to look at Jesus by your finances? Practical, practical, practical. My heart was breaking when I heard Pastor John uh, talk about Kim, Kim Sunil Gonsani. But she used money even after her death, to make people look at Jesus. Any church and any monetary gifts, please donate to the missions department. What a way, what a way to continue a legacy of having people focus on Jesus. Amen? Like what a wonderful way to live and die. Not just money, but whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, all for the glory of God. She's lived it out. It's that kind of creativity that needs to be bubbling from a Jesus-centered lifestyle. Amen? May that happen in your lives every single day. And a healthy individual, a healthy church, and a healthy small group, that's what they do. They call out to Jesus on how to use their lives for the gospel's sake. And so, whenever you soon gathers, and, you know, I'm going to talk about this soon. This year, I told you that one of the purposes is to do soon-centered ministry. Okay, soon-centered ministry. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that I will impose upon you a vision, that I will impose upon you a ministry. But here's what I'm telling you to do. As soon as all of you must gather and pray together and find a calling that applies to your group of people and live it out. And then you gather and you pray and you ask, Lord, help us get finances, either from the church and also within ourselves. Uh, and a peek into the future, the church will try to match your donations for your vision, okay? So if you have a vision and a communal calling, find a way to implement it and then ask for God to tell you how to get money and use money. That's what it means. Like, student-centered ministry is making all of you focus on God. A lot of you relied upon leaders to tell you how to use money. Now the burden is on you. You be healthy in Christ. You have a walking relationship with him, and he will instruct your path for your group to, to how to serve Centerville and how to serve this church. I want you to be excited about this. Like, I'm asking you to step up as individual images of God to carry out the mission of the church, not because an admin team is telling you how to do this, but you have a calling. Amen? Do you have a calling? Do you have a purpose that God is calling you to? Then help the church help you fulfill your life in Christ. And my, I hope my only role as a pastor is to see how biblical your vision is and then help you empower that vision, attach you to people in the KM, how they do their, their vision that way, and then connect you to money as well. Connect you to wealth and finances so that you can live it out on a soon basis. And I promise you, every single member of your soon will be engaged because personally, their life is at stake. Their health is at stake when they are focusing on this vision. No more unorganic visions that have nothing to do with your stage of life. 
You know your workplace. You know your community. You know the friends you have access to. I do not know that. Soon Center Ministry is driven to fulfill that. It makes you cry out for wisdom. It makes you cry out for communication skills. It makes you cry out to God to know how to use money. Then our church will no longer be bystanders. We will all jump in. Total mission. Amen? Verse 7. And he took him by his right hand and raised him up. And immediately, what happens when you receive the name of Jesus? Immediate healing, restoration. His feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now here's just some theological concerns that come to mind right now. I wasn't thinking about talking about this. We only have like 10 minutes left. But here's one thing. A lot of people accept, uh, expect that the name of Jesus will have automatic physical and spiritual consequences. And so you fall into a type of mysticism, right? And so uh, another group of people are so cautious about that that they don't expect any spiritual or physical implications when you accept the name of Jesus. And so how do we reconcile this? The name of Jesus has power, Amen. But how do we recognize that on a daily basis? Two things. Number one, a lack of faith in the, name of, in the name of power of Jesus can be an issue. And that's where wealth and the paradox of money comes in. We're so used to common sense solutions. Like you're all problem solvers. That's how you flourish in your workplaces. And so if you see a problem, you don't pray first. You don't, act, uh, you don't ask for Jesus. You ask for money and common sense and strategy to solve it. And so, for those of you who are like that, I encourage you, rely upon the name of Jesus. But those who are too spiritual, too superstitious, for example, God made common sense. God made systems and churches with governments and authority. And for that purpose, um, there are everyday miracles that happen in the natural. Okay, do you get that? In the natural, the supernatural happens because God made both. Like, a change of desire, for example, that's a miracle. Like, I suddenly desire Jesus more today. That's a supernatural miracle that happens even though it's not visible. And so the power of the name of Jesus is recognized every Sunday. I see it in every conversation that I have. Things are changing in our spiritual and our physical lives every day. And that's the privilege of being in ministry. I get to see what Jesus is doing, and I know he's real. So KCPC's vision, 2021, is arise, arise. Now, how do we arise? That's a question I had for a long time. How do we arise? What does it mean to arise? You know, the only thing, one of the, like, the, one of the preconditions of a church to rise is the name of Jesus. Like, there's no other foundation. What are we going to rise upon? Better infrastructure or newer programs or better discipleship. No, it's the name of Jesus, which is the foundation upon which all things are built. Amen? All things are built upon the name of Jesus. How do we arise? Let's look at the picture that I, I made. Uh, sorry, my skills are not great. <laughs> but these are the five things that organizations flourish in. Through the cross, through the gospel, money changes. Reliance upon money in a structure changes the reliance upon the name of Jesus. Amen? And that will happen. Structure in the gospel, changes into reliance upon something else. Every single week, we'll be discovering elements of the church that we need to recover. So what does it mean to arise? Have the right foundation. One is not reliance upon money and wealth, but upon the name of Jesus. 
Every single soon must know this. Every single family must know that we are not to rely upon wealth, but upon the name of Jesus. That's why the beggar celebrated. When he went into the sanctuary, the temple, for the first time, his relationship was restored. His physical health was restored. He jumped into the temple following the disciples because of what? Not because he received gold. Not because he received silver, because he received the name above all names. And that's what caused him to celebrate. And I pray that every time you leave the sanctuaries, every time you leave these doors, you would dance and leap because you have the name above all names. Right? What else are we getting from this place? It's the name of Jesus. In fact, let me tell you this. I want you to memorize this statement. Every resource that the church needs is accessed through the name of Jesus. Every, church, every resource and everything that the church needs to do, every mission of the church is made possible by the name of Jesus. Amen? The mission statement of the church requires the name of Jesus. There's no other way about it. Why is Jesus so powerful? Why is his name enough? Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Let me just read it to you. It by itself is a blessing. Read this. I mean, listen to this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things, not just the church, all of the universe, its most basic structure, information, and atoms, and molecules hold together by the authority of the name of Jesus. And he is what? The head of the body. We must be connected to him for that purpose. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have what? Supremacy. Any other resource that a church relies upon apart from Jesus is not living up to the design of the universe. Jesus must be our head. Now, a lot of you have this ingrained into your lives in some way. How do you, how do you finish any prayer? Lord, could you please solve the, the, spousal, uh, the spousal conflict in our family? And I pray this in the name of Jesus. You, you do that every single day, right? Uh, Lord, heal my child, uh, heal my child, uh, and I pray this in the name of Jesus. Lord, do this, and I pray this in the name of Jesus. And we invoke that name every single time. But here's the thing. What if I go to the White House, and I knock on the doors, and the security grabs me. I probably won't even make it there. <laughs> security grabs me, and they ask me, how are you here? And I invoke the name of Trump. I say, I'm here by the authority and the name of Trump. Now, this is a big if. The only way that that works out in my favor is if I actually have a relationship with him. Like he gave me an invitation letter or I'm his family, something that connects me to him. And so invoking a name that has power by itself has no impact unless you have a relationship. Do you get that? I had a friend in middle school. He was uh, the most unpopular, I think, kid in our class. And uh, me being friends with him, you know, has, spoke something about me as well. <laughs> um, but he was the most unpopular kid in our class. And one day he wanted attention. And so back in those days, um, uh, he thought of the most uh, popular celebrity ever. And he said he was the cousin of Ihori. Uh, she's a very uh, famous celebrity in Korea. 
And everyone was saying, like, suddenly everyone, the whole school was focused on him. Like, he's the cousin of Yehudi, right? And so we were also, you know, he was the most popular kid until we found out he actually doesn't have that relationship. It was a lie. And that's the same thing that we do with Jesus. You pray in the name of Jesus, but what relationship do you have? This is made explicitly clear. Acts 19 records the story of seven Jewish exorcists, and they were casting out demons. And what they would say is, I adjure you, I invoke the name of Jesus, uh, whom Paul proclaims. That's what he says. So they were exorcising demons, and they were saying, I invoke the name of Jesus that Paul is talking about, the Apostle Paul. And the demon would respond, and you need to listen to this. Okay, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Every time we pray in the name of Jesus, I ask you a bitter but a serious question. What relationship do you have with him? I know all of you are probably saved. You probably received the Lord. You're probably trying to follow him in obedience every single day. But that's the thing. Are you walking with the Spirit day by day? Do you have that relational proximity with him every single day? I wonder if you pray in Jesus' name and you have no relationship with him. That is why the name of Jesus often doesn't exercise power in our lives or in our church because the body which is meant to be connected with him is disconnected and yet invokes that name. The only way to have a relationship with God is through Jesus on God's terms. What does he proclaim about Jesus that you have to understand to enter into a working relationship with him? You must accept him by faith, that he forgave your sins, that he brought you into the family of God, that he loves you beyond your understanding, that he accepts you if you just believe in his name, and by that you are called righteous. Those are the only terms and conditions of entering into the family of God. The covenant, the new covenant. Jesus said as he was pouring out the wine in front of his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant. And by accepting the cross, we enter into what? A covenant relationship. And so when I ask you, what relationship do you have with God? Don't dare you give me this answer. I feel great today. I feel like God loves me today. That's not your answer. Your answer is, God enter into, entered into a covenant with me by the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And by sheer grace, I believed in that somehow. And I somehow became his son. I somehow became his daughter. Therefore, all promises of God unilaterally apply to me even though I don't deserve it. That's when you say, in the name of Jesus. And the power of that name applies to your family, applies to you as an individual, and applies to our church. Amen? So how does this work out in a church? A group of people who have a covenant relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, calling upon his name to do everything that the church needs to do. That is how we function next year, this year. Amen? This is how we function. A covenant community called unto Christ, relying upon his name for everything, not replacing it with money or structure or charisma, but only upon the name of Jesus. That's how we do church this year. Pastor John, can you come up? And on a side note, I want to leave you with this thing. Why do you think that gate is called gate beautiful? Gate beautiful. Gate beautiful, the word is uh, horaios. 
Horaios in, uh, in Greek, it means this. It doesn't mean beautiful. That's the second meaning. The first meaning is ripe or in the right time. It's timely. Timely. And so this beggar was in front of the gate. It was a beautiful gate because it was the right time for him to meet Jesus. And I want to say this to you. Is this a beautiful day? It is because it's the right time for you to enter into a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord. If any of you are not drawn to his presence yet, if you haven't placed your faith yet, and I'm looking at the camera right now, if you haven't placed your faith and trust and your allegiance in Jesus Christ, now is a beautiful time. Now is a beautiful time to receive his name and to receive all the benefits that only come through his name. That invitation still stands while it is the, the era of grace right now. After the cross, the invitation still stands and the blood of Jesus still pours out for you. Please accept that invitation. Church, let us be the name. Let us be centered upon the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's sing the song in response. And we're going to go into a quick time of prayer to realign our priorities. Let's sing.